Welcome to Tycoons of Small Biz, a podcast where small business owners are celebrated as the backbone of the American economy. Each week, we introduce you to tycoons who share their stories and advice so that small business owners may learn from their experiences. Tycoons is powered by Backbone Planning Partners, Fintrepid Solutions, and Pivotal Advisors. Join us now as our hosts connect you to today's tycoons. Good afternoon, tycoons, and welcome to today's episode of Tycoons of Small Biz. I'm your host here, as always, Austin Peterson, coming to you live this week from Southern California, actually uh, here visiting my wife's parents who, believe it or not, just celebrated their 70th, yes, I said 70th, wedding anniversary. And so all of their kids came in from all over the country to celebrate them, and it's been a great, uh, great weekend, and heading back to Arizona today. But if this is the first time you're listening to our podcast and you're wondering what it is we do here at Tycoons of Small Biz, we're a podcast that's put together by small business owners for small business owners. And our intent really is to prop up the small business owner, give them an opportunity to tell their story, share their successes, share their failures. Um, we give them this, this opportunity to share this information afterwards for their audiences, anything that we can do to help support the small business community. So we, we believe that it truly is the backbone of the American economy. So May of 2020, we started this podcast and here we are 126 episodes in and, uh, and still sharing great stories and meeting great business owners throughout the country who are truly tycoons of small biz. So with that being said, we definitely have a new tycoon in the program today. Uh, I've had an opportunity to spend some time with Matt Roberts. He's the president and founder of Liberty Tabletop, or one of the co-founders, I should say, of Liberty Tabletop uh, out in New York. And we're excited to have you on the show today, Matt. Welcome in. Thanks, Austin. Really appreciate the invitation and the chance to chat with you about small business. I agree. It's very important for the economy in the United States. Yeah, it's a it's a huge part of the economy, right? I mean, I think, you know, everybody knows the name Amazon, but not everybody knows the name Liberty Tabletop. And we're hoping to kind of change that a little bit today and, and uh, give you an opportunity to, to share your story. So before we jump into the business side of things, Matt, we always have our guests tell a little bit about themselves personally. So tell us where you grew up. Tell us about your family. Tell us what you studied in college, whatever you'd like us to know about you personally. Well, one thing to start out with is I'm a couple of weeks away from my 35th wedding anniversary, so I'm, I'll be halfway there. I can't imagine 70 <laughs> years. That's, a, that's a, one heck of a run. Um, so uh, I, I grew up in central New York. I was born in Utica, New York, the thriving metropolis of Utica, um, which is a, actually turning into a great little town. And my father was a science teacher. He taught chemistry in Oneida High School which is about the geographic center of New York State. So we moved to Oneida when I was a young kid in the early 70s. Uh, graduated from Oneida, went on to some local community college, Mohawk Valley Community College for Engineering Science. I wanted to be an electrical engineer, so I went to Clarkson University, which is very close to the Canadian border in uh, northern New York. Got a great education there in electrical and computer engineering. Dated my wife all the way through college. She was a year behind me in high school. We didn't start dating until after high school, but uh, uh, we, we made it through college together and uh, we were married in 1987. I actually worked for General Electric in the aerospace division for about five years and something really big happened in the mid, the, the mid 80s, late 80s. Uh, the Berlin Wall came down. Uh, Mr. Gorbachev tore down that wall, the famous Ronald Reagan statement. And the United States uh, defense industry, we, we didn't have any enemies anymore, at least the size of Russia 
at that time. So there's a huge consolidation in the um, in the aerospace business. GE sold to Martin Marietta, which now is Lockheed Martin, and they closed the facility in Utica, New York. So I wanted to stay in the area. My parents were in the area, and siblings. My my uh, uh, my my wife's family was in the area, and there was this company called Oneida Limited. And I knew of Oneida Limited. Um, I'd never been in the factory. I knew people that worked there. We actually knew the CEO. He was friends of the family. His kids went to school with me. Real down-to-earth guy. His name was Bill Matthews. And I got an interview in the engineering department in 1991. And oddly enough, the factory didn't want me. They said, we don't need this guy. We've got enough engineers. Um, but Bill was the CEO. And uh, sometimes it's better who you know, not what you know. And Bill said, no, you're hiring this guy. I don't care. So begrudgingly, they hired me. They didn't tell me that right away. But after a few years after I was in the organization, they said, you know, I can't believe that uh, you're still here. But if, if I had my choice, I wasn't going to hire you. But I'm glad I did. There were some really good people that worked here. Knight at the time was the largest flatware manufacturer in the world. And we made about three and a half million pieces per week. We employed 2,500 people, and we had factories in Vercelli, Italy, in Shanghai, China, in Toluca, Mexico, Ireland, Canada, all over the world. Also owned a company called Buffalo, China. So it was a big, huge corporation. The, but the interesting thing for me when I, when, and I'm, I'm, I was a pretty motivated young man at that time, I'm still pretty motivated, but uh, I looked around the room and most of the people that were interviewing me and the management team were a lot older than I was. Uh, when I say a lot, they were, you know, they were either close to my father's age or at least 15 years older than me. So I thought to myself, you know, if I play my cards right and I work hard and I could run this place someday. And I'm in this big factory, I mean, it's a great job, the pay and benefits are great, and it would be a really big, uh, big responsibility. So I was all about doing that. So fast forward a few years, I'd spent some time in Mexico City outside of Mexico City, running the Mexico, they had a plant in Toluca, Mexico. That's where I met my business partner today, Greg Owens. He was in the steel business. We were neighbors. We would, you know, have picnics together and hang out with the family. The wives were friends. And then eventually I moved back to Oneida, worked my way up in about 2004, 2003, 2004 timeframe. I was basically running the factory for Oneida. So I had my dream job. Um, Business was tough because of 9-11, and of course, there were some issues with China joining the World Trade Organization, so we were battling that as far as uh, being able to manufacture products and make a profit competing with, with the imports from China. Unfortunately, in 2004, the CEO and CFO brought me over into a meeting in the sales office, the administration building, and they said, we're closing the factory. That was a very tough blow for me personally. And also because it was a confidential thing, we had to work for a number of months on how we're going to close the factory. I was in charge of that. We had to say goodbye to well over a thousand people at the time. So after I stopped throwing things and kicking the dog, then really kicked the dog, but so to speak, <laughs> I, I was sitting in my office and I, and I, and I said to myself, you know, the, the retail game, there's a lot of money to be made in between the manufacturer and the, and the retail sale. There, there could be a spot for us if we manufacture, albeit at a higher rate price, but we also had our own brand. 
So the idea was in, in, uh, that we could have our own brand. We could run the factory, be an OEM. That would be keep the lights on business. Our own brand would be the profit center. And then we could either develop or rent out, rent out the rest of the space because it was a million square foot factory. So I didn't know a lot about sales and marketing. I'm an engineer. I was in the operations side. You know, I got my MBA, so I understand, you know, marketing 101, but so I called Greg up and Greg was in Mexico working for a steel company in Mexico City. And I said, hey, how about we buy a flatware factory? What do you think? So we started with a blank sheet of paper. And in 2005, we bought the factory from Oneida Limited on March 21st. Of 20, of 2005, right? Yeah, we actually, well, the interesting thing, another funny anecdote was, we closed on it in, uh, we did all the closing papers on February 16th of 2005. That was my wife's birthday. So I, you know, I told my wife, hey, I just bought a flatware factory for you. Uh, happy birthday. <laughs> uh, she wasn't, she wanted something else. I think. Yeah. <laughs> I've been married 24 years, so I'm still 11 years behind you. I tell people <laughs> all the time, you know, you know, my wife's parents are celebrating 70 years of marriage and I'm married to the youngest daughter. So no pressure there, right? I mean, I've got a long time ahead of me to try to catch up to them. And who knows if I'll ever make it, right? Because I wasn't as young as they were when we got married. But a um, couple of things that I'll mention that are just, it's interesting that this is, uh, you know, coincidental. But my father-in-law is also an electrical engineer, graduated with an electrical engineering degree and worked in the aerospace industry. And so he went through the exact same thing that you did Obviously, he's older than than you are, and so the downsizing and the and the letting people go, all those sorts of things, is what he had to do in the aerospace industry. So you left the aerospace industry and then did it here. Uh, he did it in the aerospace industry, and he, you know, he he loved his job. I mean, he worked for Lockheed, he worked for Hughes Aircraft, he worked, and then he finished his career with Ford Aerospace. And you know, my wife tells me, and all of her siblings talk about how. He would whistle on his way out the, the door to go to work, and he'd be whistling on the way back in until those last couple of years when it was literally his job to kind of just let everybody on his team go until it finally became his turn, right? And, and to Ford Aerospace's credit, they, they kept him right until the very end, and he was only, I think he was 58 at the time. And so they worked out an agreement with him to pay him his full salary until he could access his retirement benefits at 59 and a half without penalty. Wow, that's so, yeah, so they, they did a really good job of taking care of him. And now, I mean, he's, he's been retired longer than he worked there and they're still paying his pension and he still has some benefits. And because the Ford Motor Company owned Ford Aerospace, he still has benefits through the Ford Motor Company to lease a car, all kinds of things. And so, you know, it, with what happened, he made out as, as well as he could. But I just found that interesting that you guys have that exact same right. background. Yeah, it was, a, it was a job. You know, GE was a great company to work for. At the time, it was the largest corporation in the world. Jack Welch was the, uh, was the CEO. He was affectionately called Neutron Jack because if you weren't in the top three in your business segment, he offloaded that uh, yeah. segment. And, and aerospace was was one of them. Um, unfortunately, Utica, New York, has a, had a huge history um, with General Electric. Used to be radio receiver. They used to manufacture you know radios and televisions there. 
My grandmother worked there. She actually was would solder boards that were on the Apollo space, mission, space missions. One of them went up with her signature on the board. So they did a lot of stuff in Utica um, that was that was pretty cool, but that all disappeared pretty quickly, just like it did with Anita. I mean, if you think about it, you know the, the globalization movement that happened in the late '90s and 2000. It really the the linchpin was China joining the World Trade Trade Organization, eliminated factories left and right in all industries. I'd give you an example. You know, people talk about, yeah, I want to, I want to get the cheapest product I can, but we we had the most efficient factory in the world. What happens is if if the government subsidizes the steel, and they pay back like not not really a VAT tax, but it was basically for every dollar you exported, the government would pay you. You can sell for under your cost. So that's what they were doing, because we we literally could not even buy the raw material. For what the la- the landed cost of a set of flatware was. So where are you going then? You're going. Yeah, that yeah, it makes it makes it tough. So uh, obviously, I mean, given that environment and where things were, and and you you know you talked a little bit about how you kind of came up with this. Man, maybe we can create our own space here, and you know you can go up market and have a higher tiered product, and we can sell direct to consumer. But given the environment at the time, like you just mentioned, China joining the World Trade Organization and, and really having a hard time competing on price, as well as, you know, just just kind of everything that was going on economically at the time, what made you want to purchase the, the factory? I mean, why did you and Greg decide, you know, get together and say, let's let's do this? Well, I'm a very stubborn person. <laughs> and I, I really am. I wouldn't say that I'm anti anything, but I'm the type of person that if you, if you tell me I can't do it and I think I can, then you've just, then you're done because I'm going to do it no matter what. So there was not another person that wanted the factory. And I, I knew what the strengths and weaknesses of the factory were. And, and when you try to be everything for everyone, you have issues. So what, what I focused on was what were we good at? What could we make manufacturer that was different than the competition. And then there was another th- another thing that that we we were able to help Oneida with a soft landing. Oneida was used to having a factory for 130 years. So the salesmen, the marketing, they they never wor- had an import model. They had a, you know, they had an import division. So as soon as they decided to import everything, I knew they're going to fall on their face. So we signed a contract with them whereby we finished off the work and process, and we had a three-year contract. And so the thought was, if I'm importing $100 million worth of product from China, and I want to be able to have customer service be at 95%, I'm going to be out of products all the time. So why don't I have a second source that has 10% of my business or 5%? And they can fill in the gaps. And that's where we fit that, that little niche where we could help out Oneida. We also helped out Libby, who's uh, out of Toledo, Ohio. They, man- they manufacture glassware, but they also import flatware. So we were able to do some OEM business while we were building our brand, which was at the time, we didn't even contemplate internet sales because everybody, if you look back at 2005, Bezos was still selling CDs and books out of a, out of a small warehouse. 
Amazon was was nothing. Internet retail was was really nothing anybody talked about at that time. It didn't really happen until about five to ten five years later that that people started jumping in. So I I bought the factory because I looked at the numbers and I thought that there was a there was there was a business that 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 could that would work, but it had to be run differently. Very low overhead, no debt, working capital requirements were less, and a, just a small nimble workforce. I was able to pick some of the best employees, and we you know and we had the three year contract with Anita. What ended up happening was 2008 with the Lehman thing, and then the economy stopped in 2008, and that's what really killed our original business model. Yeah, so you mentioned OEM a couple of different times, and knowing that there are plenty of people that listen to our podcast that don't know what OEM is, why don't you just explain real quick what that is, and then I've got a follow-up question to you. Well, the term is original equipment manufacturer. It's basically, we call OEM, we're manufacturing for another brand. So one of the most iconic designs that Anita ever made was called Michelangelo. Very difficult to manufacture. We made it here for three years. So we made it with a NIDA's back stamp on it. We packaged it in a NIDA's packaging, shipped it to their warehouse in Savannah, Georgia, and they sold it. Um, we did the same with Libby, some food service, which we would call restaurant business. They buy in dozens. So we would make product in dozens with the, with the world tableware back stamp. It wouldn't have our, our back stamp on it. So that's what we did. That's what we would call OEM business. And for those who aren't in the manufacturing business, it, it's very common. I mean, the reality is a lot of manufacturing plants are manufacturing other people's brands as well as selling their own personal brand. Right. Um, yeah. One, yeah. One example is uh, a, a, a brewery next to us in Utica, FX Matt. They make Utica Club and Saranac, but they also make a lot of the micro brews that they, they, they contract manufacturing. So much of the product that they make is sold under a different brand. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty common. I just don't think that everybody realizes that. So I wanted to make sure that was, that was clarified. So, you know, one of the things that that came out to me when we had our pre-qualification meeting um, for you being on the show was, you know, you, you saw an opportunity, you saw something that could be built here, but you also, wanted to do what you could for the community, for the people who worked there and your community as a whole, because for those who haven't spent a lot of time specifically in central or upstate New York, it's nothing like Manhattan. It's very different. And so, you know, give us just kind of the backdrop there of, of the area and, and what, what it's like there and, and why that was part of your driving force. Sure. The, 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 the biggest um, industry in my area is agriculture, uh, dairy farming. Chobani Yogurt Factory is about an hour away from us. It's an agricultural-based economy. When you get a little further north, you got the Adirondacks. But um, when, when people ask me where I'm from, I say central New York. You can't even say upstate New York because that's Westchester County. Up. As soon as you cross the Tappan Zee Bridge, you're in upstate New York. Um, so you, you have to really qualify it. And it's really, it's a very rural area, a very beautiful area. Um, you've got the Finger Lakes, you've got the Adirondacks, you've got, you know, the Great Lakes. Um, so there's a lot of things to do. And you've got some medium-sized cities. You've got Albany, Syracuse, Rochester, and Buffalo that, 
run across the old Erie Canal, which is now I-90, or the Barge Canal. And it's there's small communities. Um, Oneida Limited, or Cheryl Manufacturing and our Liberty Tabletop brand, our factory is actually in a city called Cheryl, New York. And Cheryl, um, which is called affectionately the Silver City, because it was built, master planned by the company Oneida Limited, which started originally as a commune. In the 1840s, it was called the Oneida Community. Um, I don't want to get into some of the things that they did that were a little bit off. <laughs> but one of the things that the Oneida Community was really good at was business. And they also were way ahead of their time with uh, equality. When I say that, women worked in the factory. Women were worked in management. People would move around into different jobs. This is where the bloomers were invented because you're working in a factory. You can't have a big, long dress um, running around by machinery. So the United Community started out with animal traps and chains. The Victor mousetrap was made here in Cheryl, New York. Um, Sewing silks, um, canned goods. And then there was a member of the community that was a silversmith. And he brought with most of the most of the uh, um, flatware came from New England. Even today in Rhode Island, that's where a lot of uh, jewelry is manufactured. So he brought that to the, the community, and they became very successful at it. Eventually, shedding the silk manufacturer, the chains. Obviously, the fur trade isn't what it used to be in the <laughs> 1700s and 1800s. And they sort of settled with flatware and slowly built the company and the brand to the point where they had an 88% brand awareness. So if you went out to a focus group and you say, what's a brand of flatware? 88% of the people would say a night alone. So it was, a, it was a great, and, and the community was great. Everybody, I, I call it Mayberry. It's just a cute <laughs> little town to raise a family, great people. Now it's more of a bedroom community. But I, I, I was very upset also. And the other thing that drove me was there were so many really good employees that were highly skilled. You know, you talk about, okay, you're making fork spoons and knives. Um, these people in craftsmen, and they cared about their jobs. They did a great job. So with the correct sales model and the correct, you know, only manufacturing what we were good at and forgetting about the things we weren't good at, let somebody else make those or don't make them at all. Then you can become more efficient. Um, and then in the, in the, and really now the business model is the money that we make when you're buying a set of flatware from Liberty tabletop, the money goes to the people that make it. There's nobody else in between. It comes directly into our bank account in this little 125,000 square foot factory in Cheryl, New York. Yeah, no, that's really cool. So did you have the MBA before the closing of the purchase or after? Before. before. So as I was working my way up through the organization, of course, I had a ma- I had a ma- also had a master's in electrical engineering from Syracuse. I, I approached the, uh, um, the senior VP of manufacturing and engineering and then the, the VP of uh, human resources. I said, you know, if I'm really going to work up my way up this organization and, and who knows where I'm going to end up, you know, maybe I'd be in the corner office as a CEO one day. I don't know. I need, I need a little bit more business background. I need to know what a balance sheet is. I need to understand the accounting side and, and you know, what EBITDA is and you know, all of these things. 
um, in marketing and sales. So I went back to school. I was still working full time and I did what was called an executive MBA at Syracuse and I graduated around 2000. So I did that while I was working for Oneida, but I did that. A specific pur- purpose was I had, I didn't understand all that stuff. I'd sit in these meetings and like, you know, I, I need to know what the heck these guys are talking about. Yeah. I don't think everybody needs an MBA, but you know, when your background is engineering and you have very little background in finance itself, we all know engineers can do math. We all know engineers want to know all of the details about, you know, they want to know how the, what what's the term? They want to know how, what is made something. There's a, there's a saying there. How everything works. Right. Yeah. I, Um, I took, I grew up taking things apart and driving my parents crazy. Yeah. Exactly. And and that can actually make for a great person running a business, but you do need to understand those numbers. I mean, we see it time and time again, where, you know, businesses have been around for 10, 15 years, they're doing 10, 15, 20, $30 million in revenue, but they don't know or understand their numbers. And it can really lead to, to big issues. So I think obviously that that helped, but you kind of already alluded to this a little bit. You talked about 2008 and everything that happened, Lehman Brothers, et cetera, uh, that kind of led the whole country, really, and the whole world down this this path. So, you know, you you closed in in 2005 on the financing. You took on this, you know, big amount of debt for you and Greg to kind of build this, and it hasn't been all you know unicorns and rainbows since then. So, tell us what it's been like from 2005 to today. Sure, I mean. Th- we hit some pretty low points. So when 2008 happened, all of our OEM business, the Unitas, the Libby's, we had a couple other companies that we manufactured for also, their orders stopped. Back up a little bit, we did have two other customers that were fairly fairly large. One was a uh, Cutco Cutlery. Cutco is out of Olean, New York. They're the largest cutlery manufacturer in the in the United States. And we manufacture their forks and spoons under the Cutco name. We still do that. And we did it back then. We also had a GSA contract. So that's um, two designs that went, you know, Coast Guard Academy, USS Nimitz, USS Ronald Reagan, you know, all over the world. But the problem was those two businesses by themselves were too small to be able to keep the factory running and make any money. So we muddled along for about two years. And we ended up shipping the Cutco and GSA business to Mexico, the factory that I ran down there. was still making flatware, and they're friends of ours. Gerardo Aguirre owns the, owns the factory. And then, so most people, when you're going to go bankrupt, don't walk in one day and all of a sudden everything explodes. We were in talks with our lawyers. We were in talks with our accountants, and we're saying, guys, our business has disappeared. We're we're dying here. We've got all this debt. We can't pay our bills. So basically what our accountants told us, said, look, let's write up the, the papers for the bankruptcy. And as soon as, you know, one of the shoes falls, somebody sues you because you haven't paid their bills and you go to the courtyard steps, you throw yourself at the mercy of the court and you declare bankruptcy. So prior to this happening, we had manu- we had, spent almost three quarters of a million dollars. In addition to the, all the other debt we had, we took on another three quarters of a million dollars to design seven designs that were ours. It said, 
Cheryl on the back of them because we were going to start selling direct online now. We never got to that point. By the time we were able to um, have that product in inventory, we had to declare bankruptcy. So we declared bankruptcy on October 4th, 2010. I'll never forget that day. At the, the same week that we declared bankruptcy, we opened our website. People look at me like, have five heads when I <laughs> well here here's something you learn about when, when in bankruptcy that I learned first of all it's a very humbling experience I you feel like a failure but if you owe the bank ten dollars it's your problem if you owe the bank five million dollars it's their problem so the bank was all ears when we told them how we're going to exit the bankruptcy and we're going to exit it because in 2010 Amazon was a big deal people were internet retail was big and we felt that we had a business model that we brought to the bankruptcy court. You have to show them how you're going to exit, how you're going to pay back your secured and unsecured creditors. So we started our website the same week. And the website, the, the company was called USA Brands. The website was Liberty Tabletop. And USA Brands was owned by, Greg, by Kate Owens, Greg's wife, and Alice Roberts, my wife. We couldn't get a credit. You know, this was S-Corp. We were bankrupt. Uh, yep. We had no credit. We were persona non grata. So in October, we started selling online in 2010. So how did we get out of the bankruptcy? Um, we owe millions of dollars. We still don't have a lot of, a lot of income. It takes a long time to build a, a web-based brand. Um, so what we did was we sort of lived off of the margins that the Mexicans were making, they were making our, the, the GSA and the Cutco. And that allows us to cash flow some of the overhead. And then we would manufacture our flatware on the website, Liberty Tabletop. We would sell it, take the cash, buy more steel, make more. And we went through what I called campaigns. And I think we did six or seven campaigns over the course of the four years until we exited the bankruptcy. The other things we did is we sold the land and buildings. So now we're a tenant. We sold every piece of equipment that we didn't need and everything that I thought that I needed to resurrect the business, I kept and we just shoved them off into a corner. And then while we were doing these campaigns, we would call people back. Some of them would come back. We would make the manufacture the campaign. I mean, I would be working in the buffing machines. My wife was, you know, was inspecting we were reworking product. We were doing the shipping, receiving out of a little office. We were carrying the boxes through snowbanks from one building to the next during the Christmas season to sell in our in our internet business. And it it, it took us four years before we got on the other side of that. Yeah, and I think you know, I, I think that that messes with your head. You alluded to that to that a little bit. And so, what I want to do is I actually want to talk a little bit more about that, what it takes to, to push through that. But let's take a quick break. We'll hear a quick call to action for our listeners, and then we'll come back and unpack that a little bit more and, and talk about, you know, kind of what things have been like since then and, and why manufacturing in the USA, all those sorts of things. So, Hey there, Tycoons. Austin Peterson here, co-host of Tycoons of Small Biz. If you think you have what it takes to be considered a tycoon and you're wondering how you could become a featured guest, please follow and then message us at Tycoons of Small Biz on LinkedIn. We'd love to have a conversation with you to see if it is a mutually good fit. And if so, we'll get you scheduled for an interview. If you're unsure about being a guest on our podcast, 
but are contemplating selling your business over the next few years and you'd like to know what your business is worth, please also follow us and then message us on LinkedIn for your no-obligation, informal valuation of your business. We look forward to hearing from you, and thanks for listening to the Tycoons of Small Biz podcast. And now, back to today's program. Welcome back, Tycoons. Austin Peterson here from Tycoons of Small Biz. We're interviewing Matt Roberts, uh, one of the co-founders and president of Tabletop or Liberty, excuse me, Liberty Tabletop Flatware. Matt, we were just talking about what it takes to to kind of go through bankruptcy, and you, you know, you talked about it being four years, but it's it had to have been four grueling, but also laser focused years. So, I mean, talk to us a little bit about what that, what that was like for you mentally. I mean, you said, you you know, you feel like a failure when you, when you file bankruptcy. I certainly think that most people can understand that it's really, you know, it's tough to accept that as somebody who's always been, you know, successful, who's done well in school, who's, you know, worked their way up through a business. So there's, there's an ego hit that's involved, you know, there as well, but after that, you have to kind of pull yourself up by the bootstraps and make things happen, right? So talk to us about what that was like for you personally. Any, I mean, if you're open to it, any strains that that may have caused with your business partnership, with your marital partnerships, you know, talk to us a little bit about that and what it was, you know, what it takes to get through that. Because I, I think we're coming into a time frame. I don't think it's going to be anything like 2008, but there are certainly business owners who are listening who are either seeing or potentially going to see slowdowns in their own businesses as well. Right. So my personal uh, relationships, I mean, my wife and I, were, I mean, it actually strengthened our relationship because we were, uh, we, we locked arms and we're in this together because she worked for the company also. She was our HR manager and she helped with customer service on the web. And, you know, working with your family is a double-edged sword. It can go one way or the other. When it's good, it's really good. When it's bad, it can be really bad. Um, yeah. But it was the opposite experience with, with, with me. The relationship with Greg, you know, we've known each other since probably 1994, 95. We're like brothers. And there were times we fought like brothers during this, <laughs> during this time frame because it was a, it was a two-headed monster. But what, what we did to mitigate that is I basically did duties one through five and he did six through 10 and we tried to separate so that we weren't in each other's sandbox so to speak and that way he could focus on he focused on the bankruptcy court financials working with the lawyers i focused on keeping the factory from freezing manufacturing the product finding people to make the product making sure it was done really well and and you know working with the equipment keeping it going so that helped us a lot. Now, if you go through the bankruptcy, I actually, my analogy is when we when we started the company, it was almost a continuation of Anita Limited. On March 22nd of 2005, I worked for Anita Limited. On March 23rd, my paycheck was from, coming from Cheryl Manufacturing. We actually had some of their employees in our offices to help us. It really was almost a continuation. After the bankruptcy, we became a startup because we had nothing. Okay, we had no business. We had no business model. We had something in our heads of what we thought. So it was actually run like a startup. We every single penny that we spent anguished over what we're going to spend it on. We did everything ourselves. Like I told you, you know, we we did we did all of the work ourselves. Everything, every little thing that was done during that 
four-year time period, we had our, as owners, had our hands in everything. So we didn't have anybody else to rely on. The other thing that was very important, and, and, I, and I would make sure that anyone who wants to start a business or wants to recapitalize or wants to change the business model or anything, there's, there's two really important partners you really need to be, uh, really need to make sure you have that are really good. One, you have to have a really good law firm, okay? Um, and then you have to have a really good accounting firm. Um, we, had two, we had two great partners and they held our hands through the process. We did all the work, but they helped us to get through the process. And then you got to be willing to switch gears. We thought that our business model was rock solid when we started. And as soon as it all crumbled, we only saw one way out. And the only way out was through direct consumer marketing on the internet. And, and here's why I think this is something as a small business, if you don't have an internet presence, if you go to Macy's, I'll give I'll just give you the little retail model versus the the, the direct consumer model. If you if you sell a million dollars worth of product to Macy's at 50% margin, okay, they're gonna sell that for ten, for probably eight to ten million dollars. They take all the money. So something that you paid a hundred dollars for, it probably costs them fifteen to twenty dollars for that product. And then the, the brand gets in the middle. Ralph Wren's in the middle. So something that maybe costs five to seven dollars to make, we're paying a hundred dollars for. Okay. And when you sell that to Macy's, I'm making fun of Macy's, sorry, because we got Macy's, mm-hmm. but it's 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 an example of a of a big high-end store. Not only do they take all of the money from a margin standpoint, you pay for the advertising. They charge you back if something's mislabeled or it gets damaged. They, they have whole departments that that's their whole job is to charge you back. Then when are you going to get the money? It's not net 30, it's net 45, maybe 60. And they drag you along. Same thing with any of the other retailers. Some are much better than others, but that's an example. When you sell something on the internet for $100, you give $4 to the visa, okay? You get $96, but you get it in two days. Okay, so you can sell for retail. You, your accounts receivable are a minuscule, and you're competing with Macy's and Bed Bath and Beyond and Williams Sonoma and all of those companies. So you're able to take that, take all of the middlemen. So something like our product that costs it could cost four to five times what it, the manufacturer than it does in China. We can compete with them head to head on the in the in the retail market. Yep. Yeah, cutting out those middlemen you know, in specific industries is, is enough to make it possible. So you mentioned the ability to manufacture in the U.S. And even though it costs more than manufacturing in China or some of these other countries uh, around the world where a lot of people manufacture, you're still able to compete. So for you, why is it why is it so important that you guys manufacture in the U.S.? And, and second part to that is what really makes you guys different outside of the USA manufacturing than other flatware brands? Well, the obvious reason for manufacturing in the U.S. is the factories here, and I wanted, we wanted to save it. I mean, I spent a lot of time contemplating the, the, uh, the demise of manufacturing in the United States during that time period of 2000 to 2005 and saw so many companies go by the wayside. And I, and I said to myself, guys, this is going to, 
everything is cyclical. And when I say cyclical, not necessarily cyclical with what country you're manufacturing in, it's cyclical within the, within the mature, how the other the, the sourcing nation matures. I'll give you an example of flatware. After World War II, Japan was a large manufacturer and imported into the United States. You know, they started out with little plastic toys. And when you got into the 70s, um, they started manufacturing flatware. So th- that country worked its way up the food chain of manufacturing. Then they started making appliances, automobiles, higher tech products, and their flatware became so so expensive that it was cheaper to make it in the States. So that manufacturing went to South Korea. And in the 1980s, South Korea was the largest was the largest manufacturer of flatware in the world. The largest, that country produced more flatware than any other country in the world. Then what happened? LG, Samsung, Hyundai, they start manufacturing all of these high-tech items and everything went to Indonesia, China, and Vietnam. Now China is starting to go through that evolution and you're starting to see wage inflation you're starting to see, you know, the kids in China don't want to work 16 hours a day making iPhones anymore. They want to be in Starbucks and they want they want to buy an iPhone. So that that generation is not the same as the subsistence agriculture generation that flooded the cities to manufacture years ago. So that now you're starting to see it's starting to flatten out. India is a different animal than China. Uh, the Hindus, they're not the same as the Chinese, uh, you know, in the in the communist regime. They're not going to act the same way as far as uh, be, being pushed around, so to speak. So it start, now we're starting to see manufacturing flatten out. So with the, add the pandemic to it, now people are, stock, are, are talking about nearshoring. So let's manufacture a third of our products. Let's get some of it from Mexico and maybe the rest can be from somewhere else. And now we have an insurance policy when something happens to us. So that that I knew that that was going to happen. I didn't know if it was going to happen in my lifetime or not. <laughs> but I think the pandemic exacer- accelerated that. So that's why we want to make things in the United States. Now, what makes us different? Well, when I was running the factory for a night, it was a race to the bottom. We had Walmart. We had um, all these huge uh, food service like uh, Red Lobster and Outback Steakhouse, and they were always pressuring us from a price standpoint and trying to come after our margins to the point where we were pulling quality processes out of the product. What we did, and we did it consciously in 2010, we actually pulled all of our product off the shelf and we refinished it to a higher quality. We, we did the edges better. We polished them we, so that we didn't have any holes or pits and the pattern detail was good, et cetera, et cetera. So we want, if we're going to put our name on the back, it has to be the best flatware in the world. And we know what the quality flatware is. I mean, I've been doing this for 30 some years and a lot of our employees have also. So that makes us different from a quality standpoint. We Now that we're in control of our destiny and we control the factory, not some company that's buying from us, we can make the product the way we want to make it, not the way somebody else tells us to make it. And then the last thing that differentiates us 
is something that we inherited from the labor movement. We manufacture our own stamping tools. And we have a process. It's called an etching process. I don't want to get into the technical details of it. But we're able to reproduce the stamping dies exactly the same every single time. And why that, why that makes it so, so important is that we can make very intricate designs and we can reproduce them. Whereas our competitors, every time they break a die, they're making it by hand or having to do a lot of handwork and the pieces don't look exactly the same. So that segues into, if you go to our website, libertytabletop.com, you'll see what we call affinity design. And with this fell right into our lap also because our employees insisted. We have a, we have a, let me, let me go for a few more minutes, Austin. Oh yeah, you're fine. Yeah. I don't want to, I don't want to take, talk too much, but. (laughs) (laughs) No, you're doing great. You know, I, I could talk about this for hours. A little bit, we're a little bit passionate about our spoons, forks, and knives here. (laughs) Um, Which seems a little crazy, but. Well, we are a little crazy. So our toolmaker and a couple of the employees in the factory on his own came up with some designs. And we st- when we start our designing process, we either do it with drawings or if we get past the drawing phase, he will hand cut a piece out of brass. He's an artist in, our, in, 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 in this field. When you go on our website and look at the designs, he hand cuts the first die of every single one of our designs. So they showed up in our office one day with one one handle had a bunch of skulls on it. One had some zombies. Another one had flames. There was some other design that was even crazier than that. And they and uh, and Eric Lawrence, who's our uh, who's our designer, said, "Matt, people like this stuff. I think it would sell." So we have a staff meeting um, once a week, and this was even you know this is two thousand. 12 or 13 probably. And we showed the, the flatware samples and everybody was like, no way are we going to make that stuff. <laughs> Who would buy skulls on a piece of a spoon or a fork? It's nuts. We're not going to do it. So we basically told them to go pound salt, which, but they didn't give up. So Eric came back to us and all, most of our marketing has always been done on Facebook and Google AdWords um, just because that's where um, everybody, everybody looks and shops, and that's where people are online searching yeah. around. So he came to our office and he said, "He said, guys, type in hashtag Harley Davidson, type in hashtag Walking Dead, type in hashtag Zombies, Dia de los Muertos, all of this stuff." So we typed in a bunch of these hashtags, and you can find out. And I don't, I can't remember how we did it. How many people follow these hashtags? And it was like forty-seven million people. Yeah. Greg and I looked at each other and we're like, you got to be kidding me. So Greg says, said, you think we should give it a shot? I said, okay, we're going to make 1,200 play settings. And that's it. And we'll see how it sells. Well, it flew off the shelf and we make designs you'll never see anywhere. The Celtic design, the Calavera, which is the skull. Skull is sort of a bad way to say it. Calavera is the Spanish word for skull. The Woodstock pattern for 50th anniversary of Woodstock and the latest one, which is close to my heart. In fact, today, my late father-in-law's birthday is today. He was a beekeeper and we have a design called Honeybee. And um, that's probably our fourth bestseller. You're hmm. not going to see that anywhere, anywhere in the market. Wow. That's, yeah, that's really cool actually. And it, and it's, 
it's great to hear that that came internally, right? It's, it's somebody who worked for you that wanted to do something different, thought they had an idea that would work and they brought it to you. And, and, you know, even though you said no in the beginning and everybody said, no, that'll never sell. He didn't give up and he just kept, he kept pushing. Yeah. And that's, you know, that's, that's another way to be a, you know, to differentiate yourself. We're, we're different. Okay. How do you make yourself different? Especially when you're a small business and you're selling online, you're not beholden to the, the tail's not wagging the dog, so to speak. And, it, yep. and it's also very liberating. I mean, you can walk in the, in the, in the morning and we can make decisions. We don't need seven signatures. We just do it. You know? yeah. just, I, don't, I don't think I could ever work for anybody else. I'm just, I'm just an old <laughs> dog doing this for too long. And not that we, or belligerent when it comes to people asking us to do things. It's just, uh, it's, uh, it's very liberating to have your own business. Yeah, no, absolutely. And as a small business owner, I obviously believe the exact same thing. And, uh, you know, I tell people I'm a small business owner because nobody else would let me work for them. But, <laughs> you know, I, <laughs> I also know that I, I would struggle working for other people as well. So, um, so we're running, you know, close to the end of the time, but I, I want to kind of get your feedback on on a couple of things, and I'm just trying to figure out how best to to ask this. I mean, obviously, we we just came through the COVID nineteen pandemic, so I'm sure that had some sort of an effect uh, on your business, and and it could have been positive, could have been negative. Um, and so, you know, maybe kind of touch on that real quick, and then where do you see Cheryl Manufacturing and Liberty Tabletop in the next five to ten years? Well, the, the, the pandemic, and, you know, and thank God, you know, we, we had a lot of people that got COVID. Uh, we still have people that have COVID now. Um, it's running back through again. Um, there, was, there, was a, there was a trend with brick and mortar fading away and internet sales growing. And it was accelerated by the pandemic. Our web business went up 250% over two years. And it was because, well, we can go through the reasons. I mean, obviously nobody was shopping. Everybody was home. People didn't have, they couldn't travel, eat out. So they spent their money internally on their house, a lot of renovations, a lot of buying things for their home. So those things greatly accelerated our, um, our sales and the internet. Right now, I know you, Austin. You mentioned the fact that the economy is, is slow, and we're prob- we're we're in a recession. Let's let's be honest. Um, yep. Our business is flattened out, so our job this year is to try to have the same revenue as we had last year, and it might go down ten percent next year. I don't know in certain aspects of our business, but five to ten years from now, I mean, if if you were to talk to me, let's say ten years from now, I might be retired. Fifty-eight now, <laughs> um, but you you would see a company that is at least twice as big as it is now. We're we're scaring eleven million in sales. Five years ago, we were three and growing. Now we're not immune from from what's going on in the economy. Uh, when you've got to go spend a hundred dollars to fill your tank with gas and to heat your house, your heating oil or natural gas have doubled. You're not going to have that that uh, uh, the money to spend on the disposable income on durable goods, so to speak. So, yeah. so we're going to see that, but it's it'll come back. Um, and and it's, it's and the kids, my kids, they're doing everything on their phones. Go back ten years, 
to today, how it's changed. Ten years from now, it's going to be totally. It's going to be totally different. The internet sales is going to continue to grow. Yeah, I agree with you 100. percent So I guess maybe my follow up question is, as a way to close this out is, you know, you said five to ten years. Ten years specifically, you could you could be retired. Do you have a plan for how the business changes hands? Do you or Greg have kids in the business, either one of you, or have you have you even thought that far ahead at this point? We have thought about it, okay? And our job right now is to train the next generation of silversmiths, okay? We've gotten to this point. I'm not going to go anywhere unless the, 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 the people taking over this business either were on the board and were continue to manage it, or if there's new ownership, um, we can pick and choose um, who we have as our succession, our succession plan. Greg's son, Will, works in the business. Fortunately or unfortunately, when my children graduated from college, we were still in bankruptcy. So, you know, um, my, my oldest son probably would have gone into the business, Andrew. Uh, maybe my other kids would have too, but the timing wasn't right. And they've got their own careers now. Um, and, you know, maybe one of them would come back. But the, the, the key, and I tell people, and Greg and I, were, and, and we also, just so you know, we, and when we recapitalize the business, we have another family owner. So there's three families that own the business. It's the drum, the Hanlon family out of Syracuse, whose grandfather worked for Anita Limited. So we're all community-minded, all right? Um, so the key is to make sure that flatware is manufactured in Cheryl forever. That's what our goal is. Yeah. yeah, I think that's a great a great pillar for you guys to to build on, right? And and having a succession plan is not just about the money for you guys or you know the transition itself. It's it's more about what's right for the community, what's right for Cheryl Manufacturing overall, and how do we make that work? Right. Our legacy is more. Our legacy has to be, in, in my estimation, we saved the factory, we built it back as much as we could, and we created a place where people could work and have a good job and a career and be productive members of society, and and do something. Literally, everybody that walked through this door do something that nobody else thought we could do. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you what, you know, we talked about this on our prequel call. People don't buy flatware. You may, you may buy it one or two times in your in your whole life. But what, I, what I've gained from this is I'm thinking about the flatware in my own kitchen drawer. And I'm thinking, eh, it's probably time to, to change it. Uh, I've got kids that aren't that far away from getting married. And flatware is kind of a, you know, a gift for, for that type of an occasion as well. And so... I don't see any reason for me personally to buy flatware anywhere but Liberty Tabletop. Thank you very much. And it's, you know, one of the things I didn't mention quickly is that we are 100% domestically manufactured. Our steel is melted in the United States. And what I tell people all the time, you know, you're gluten-free and you're organic and cage-free eggs and all this kind of stuff. But what about what you're putting in your mouth every time? You know where that steel came from. I know where it came from. I see the test report. I know exactly that it's safe and it's 100% domestic content. Yeah, and yet another reason. So let's just wrap up by you telling us, you know, how to get in touch with you. Obviously, you mentioned the website, libertytabletop.com, but how do they get in, you know, how do they learn more about 
the company, about you personally? What would you like uh, the rest of the audience to know? Well, you can you can learn a lot more about the company just by going to the website. There's a lot of videos. There's some some of our story, what happened, how we got to where we are. We have a customer service line, and the customer service people are two offices down. I can hear them. Um, <laughs> their their product knowledge is is unparalleled. People can actually call if they're in the area in Central New York. They can call and set up an appointment. We don't have a we don't have a store. We have a showroom where you can come in and buy, but go to the website and peruse it. Call up and talk to the uh, talk to our customer service. We have a samples program because you want to feel and touch the silverware to determine whether it's the right weight or feel or look. So you can buy samples if you want to buy, and you, then you can determine whether or not that design uh, works for you. That's great. Well, I've really appreciated the conversation, Matt. Obviously, it's uh, it's great to talk to you anytime I have an opportunity. You've built something great and look forward to uh, watching you guys over the next five to 10 years and, and well beyond. Thanks. Thanks, Austin. Really appreciate uh, you taking the uh, time to speak with us, too, and to, to shed some light on this, our little little factory in central New York. Awesome. Thanks so much for being here. Thank you. You've been listening to Tycoons of Small Biz, a podcast for small business owners by small business owners. Join us every Tuesday at 1 p.m. Arizona time for an introduction to another great tycoon. And be sure to follow us on our social media channels for links to all of our episodes and great content.